My name is Andrew. I'm a pastor on staff, and uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. And uh, we all got through Warren's announcement, so I think we can. Uh, I think we're okay. Um, see in here? No, good. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to start off with a, a kind of a random question, but have you guys ever heard of this thing? It's called the humble brag. The humble brag. Have you ever heard of that? Raise your hand if you've ever humble bragged. One of you is honest in this whole room. That's good. Um, you do it. I'll explain it, and then you'll know how you do it. Uh, it's this phrase. It was actually coined by uh, one of the writers of Parks and Rec. And uh, here's kind of a definition. It's an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. So it's basically just a sneaky way to brag without having to feel bad about it. Uh, and so, for example, it's like when some, you ask someone, how are you doing? And they say something like, well, you know, our family's exhausted. We're still recovering from our two-week trip to Fiji, and we are just... <laughs> And you're kind of like, oh, boo-hoo, that's wow. Um, and social media, so it's kind of this phenomenon on social media, uh, has given, it's given even more creativity to how we can do that kind of self-promotion, right? People are constantly tweeting about how hard their high-paying job is uh, or how worried they are <laughs> that their, uh, their gifted children aren't being challenged, right? And uh, it's, like, it's like, I know your kids, that's not the issue. Um, yeah. And a New York Times op-ed columnist recently wrote just this sarcastic, funny article about humble bragging. And uh, one of his favorite humble brag tweets, he, he puts them together and he, he puts it this way. So sometimes when I crave a powerful dose of humility, the kind of humility that can come only from fully apprehending the lot of those less fortunate than myself, I turn my attention to the plight of the former White House press secretary, Ari Fleischer. He experiences an exquisite kind of pain as he lamented on Twitter earlier this year, they just announced my flight at LaGuardia as number 15 for takeoff. I miss Air Force One. <laughs> and then he shares last one, my personal favorite, uh, from Jared Folliwell, who's a member of a band called Kings of Leon, and who tweeted, uh, there's a tornado coming. Hide in my wine cellar, or my theater, or my gym? With the telling parenthetical at the end, of, uh, even in the face of death, I still find ways to brag. What is it inside every one of us? What is it that gets something out of that? <laughs> that needs to make sure we look good, that we have it all figured out, even in the face of death, even when it doesn't matter anymore? Well, I, I know why I do it. Uh, it's basic misdirection. If I point to the things I'm proud of long enough, maybe other people, and including myself, I will be able to forget and ignore the things that I'm ashamed of. If people are looking over here, right, they won't look here. And we're really that proud. We are. We, we all do this. We're really that proud. And we're really that insecure. We spend so much time and energy and money making sure people see and hear and read about the parts of our lives that we want them to. And no one is immune to this, even Christians. And we know Jesus and humility, right, are supposed to go together. Uh, but we too can get creative in how we self-promote, right? So if you were here last week, uh, Kenny launched us into our new series. Um, and he talked about, you know, the church smiling face and the iron shirt and the how are you, I'm doing great a thousand times on a Sunday morning. And those things aren't always bad. I'm not, I'm not trying to critique them, but they can be a very subtle form of Christian pride that we're supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to be good people, and we don't have so much a new identity in Christ as we have a new identity to manage in front of others. 
But the major problem with this is that the gospel that we cling to, if we truly grasp its meaning and message, does not let us get away with that kind of life. The gospel of the New Testament, in fact, is a tool, if you think about it, of divine humiliation for all who believe. Humiliation. The gospel makes us humble. And the more we forget that, the more tempting it becomes to abandon this gospel altogether. And this is where the Corinthian church is in our passage this morning. Last week, Kenny started us in 1 Corinthians. This is an ancient letter to a church with lots of problems, lots of problems. And we're going to spend the next several months covering some of those problems. But on the one hand, they had so much going for them. Very gifted church. Absolutely beautiful story behind how the church was planted. Paul helped to plant this church in one of the most uh, idolatrous, hedonistic cities in the empire, Corinth. It's kind of like the the Las Vegas of, you know, the empire. Incredible story. God's clearly working in and through this church. But on the other hand, this church is an absolute mess. It's a mess with problems. Problem after problem after problem. And perhaps more than anything, their pride was destroying them. They're dividing themselves around leaders, right? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. And in essence, This is just theological one-upsmanship. It's like, well, I follow the better teacher, so I'm better than you. I mean, that's all that's happening. Oh, excuse me. Not only that, they were tempted to move on from the humiliating message of the cross or to add to it or to leave it altogether. And they think it's a sign of maturity that they're doing this. We have a deeper understanding now of God and, and how he works, Paul. We don't need your gospel anymore and we don't need you. And that is the pride behind much of their problem. And they're bragging about it. They're flaunting it. They're throwing it in Paul's face. And Paul will tell them, and he will tell us, and anyone tempted to boast, that the gospel only allows you to boast in one thing. One thing. It's the foolishness of the cross. Boast your heart out, Paul says. Boast all you want, but boast in this one thing. And if you can do that, if you can center your life on that, there is no sin, there is no problem, there is no circumstance that you cannot overcome. But what does it mean? What does it look like to boast in the cross? Uh, What does that mean? Well, Paul explains it here in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. If you haven't turned there yet, you can do that now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I want to read the first few verses together one more time. Here's how Paul begins. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now stop there for just a sec. The first thing Paul teaches us here about the gospel that he preaches is this. God's way is foolish. God's way is foolish. The word of the cross is folly, says Paul, and here's what he means by that. Paul says that the cross, first of all, the message of the crucifixion of Jesus. It divides every person into one of two categories, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The cross divides people. It reveals who we are. And that may sound offensive or simplistic if you're not a Christian. I don't blame you. I understand that. But Paul's saying this is an objective fact. This is what happens when you're confronted with the message of the cross. You're either perishing or you're being saved. And for those who are perishing, who from a biblical worldview have rejected God's grace, One of the ways you know this is where you are 
is that the message of the cross to you is foolishness, it's folly, it's stupid, it's nonsensical, it's laughable to you. And Paul explains why it seems so foolish in verse 22. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And Paul is basically saying there are two basic reasons for rejecting this cross. One demands signs and the other demands wisdom. And and we don't mean wisdom here as a virtue, right, of, of wisdom, but as a philosophy, as a, a way of thinking, a cultural framework. And those are, you know, we have those today, obviously. For the first century Jew, they demanded signs, miracles of power, someone to free them from oppression that they were under in Rome. They had a very specific idea of what that should look like for God to save them. And really, that was the big reason many of them rejected Jesus. And, and you'll see this all over the Gospels themselves. But just for an example, in John 6, Verse 30, the Jews come to Jesus as he teaches and they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And Jesus will basically say, I'm paraphrasing, he'll basically say back, I'm going to die on a cross. That's my sign for you. And they will say, but is there another sign that you'll do for us? We don't want that sign. We don't get that sign. And here's what this looks like today. Uh, Jesus, show me some fireworks. Fix my problems. Get me what I want. Show me your power, and then I will follow you. And some of you here, you aren't Christians because you're waiting for God to show up in your life like this. You're demanding a sign from him. And of course, the irony behind that is that God may just be doing that. He may be showing you signs, but it's so easy to ignore them if they don't, if they don't look the way you wanted them to. God may be showing you the depth of sin in your life by pointing you to the cross, but you're so focused on your financial worries or your job or somewhere else that you feel God isn't helping you and you cannot hear him. You think he isn't there. You think he doesn't care and you reject him. That's the first reason we often reject the cross. The second way is personified, right, by this, he calls them the the first century Greek, and this is kind of the intelligentsia, the educated They wanted wisdom. They wanted philosophy. They wanted Jesus and Paul to be Plato or Aristotle. They wanted a system, a worldview that they could understand, that they could predict, and most importantly, that did not challenge or upset their sensibilities or assumptions about the world. For them, a crucified God, for the first century Greek, a crucified God, a God in the flesh, was just idiotic to them made absolutely no sense. God would never do that. God would never humble himself like that. Surely this cannot be true wisdom. This is folly. And maybe this is you. There's something in the gospel that offends every person and every culture. And for the Greeks, it was the Bible's teaching on a a crucified God. Today, it may be the Bible's teaching on sexuality. It may be the Bible's teaching on the reality of miracles. Whatever it is, the prevailing philosophy of the day rejects them because they don't fit into the system. They are folly to the Greeks and now they are foolish to us. And if the gospel and the message of Christianity simply fit into a mold you were comfortable with, you would accept it. Why didn't Jesus write a textbook that could erase every conceivable doubt in my mind? If Jesus is true, why do I still have so many unanswered questions? Why are there so many things I cannot accept about the faith? It must not be true. 
Now again, the irony here is that if the cross is a message from God, if Jesus' crucifixion is a divine, miraculous, and cosmic revelation, then it should offend every person and every culture, right? If there were a culture that the cross did not offend, well, that's probably because that culture made it up. But if God were truly speaking, then everyone should disagree with something that he says, which is what we find. But either way, whether you demand a sign or you're demanding a philosophy, Paul says you are setting yourself up to reject Christianity because you are giving God an ultimatum. You're saying, God, meet my demands and then I will follow you and the message of the cross will never be enough for you. Can you imagine, just think about this, can you imagine entering any other kind of relationship in your life with that kind of ultimatum? It's like, sure, I'll go on a date with you, that sounds great, but before we go, first I want you to scientifically and empirically demonstrate your affection for me, and then tell me about yourself in a way that is perfectly satisfying and leaves no question unanswered. Does that sound good? Right? If, that's, if you're on the other side of that, you're like, check please, we're, we're ready, let's go. <laughs> Do you see how unreasonable that is? Of course we have questions, of course we have doubts. You don't have to check your brain at the door to come to faith. Paul is one of the most brilliant people to ever live, but he did not, and here's the key, put his hope, and he did not bank his life on being able to answer every question and understand every detail of what God is doing. Pride makes us demand things of people and only accepts people on its own terms. That is what is destroying the Corinthian church. They are rejecting the folly of the cross for the pride of intellect. Or to put it another way, the cross offends our pride because it sends a clear message to you and me, and it's this. This is what it took to save you. This is what it took. So Christian, if you want to boast, boast in this, you are worse off than you think. You're worse off than you think. We are not that smart. We don't get to give God ultimatums. When God sent his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross and to save us from our sin, it was not to make us feel good about ourselves. It was not to confirm how smart we human beings are or how talented that we are. It was not a proposal for us to evaluate. It was a cosmic statement about the status of our souls, about who we really are and what it costs to save us. And you can accept it as such, or you can reject it, but what you cannot do is return and exchange it. And here's the proof. Paul puts it this way in verse 21. He says, for in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Paul is saying, look at, look at the best human attempts to grasp the truth, the best wisdom there is to get to God, to get to the truth about the world without the cross. Picture that in your mind. The philosophies of the world, the technological advances, the scientific breakthroughs, for all of our collective knowledge and power and prestige and education and innovation, we have not moved one inch closer to understanding the nature of reality, how to live the good life, or what God is really like apart from the cross. Because in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. For all of our pride, at the end of the day, all we have to boast in is our own failure to know God without his direct intervention in Jesus Christ. We're worse off than we think. And for my pride, and for my sin, and for my mess, God had to die. 
This is an offensive truth, but it is the beginning of true biblical wisdom. God's way, God's cross, it seems foolish, but it's the beginning of wisdom. But that's not the only thing, not the only ding, I should say, to our collective ego that we need to hear this morning. Uh, Paul's not finished yet. God's way is foolish, yes, but so are God's people. God's people are foolish. And that's right, that's this room right here. God's people are foolish. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that last line, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9, and here's the context of that quote. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. If there is anything we Americans boast in, there it is. How smart we are, how much power we have, how secure we are, how comfortable we are, how much stuff we have. So we've got our credentials, right? So you look good on the outside. You've got a great resume. You've got a great Facebook page. (laughs) Just remember that God sees beyond all of those things, does not care about those things. He sees beneath all the things that we let define us to the world. He knows who we really are. Foolish. Right? Just think about your life choices. Foolish, weak. Look at your inability to change. Right? We're all doing uh, New Year's resolutions. We're weak and we're despised. Look at your sin, the mistakes, the things you would never tell anybody else. And only those who glimpse this foolishness and this weakness and how despised they really are would ever receive a Savior like Jesus Christ. Don't forget who you really are, says Paul or you will miss the cross entirely. And so, so boast in this. You want to boast, boast in this. God picked you and he picked me because nobody else would. It's like, ouch, right? <laughs> but Paul isn't trying to be hurtful, okay? Here's what he means. You know how on the playground, as a kid, there was always this terrible moment during recess when your friends had to split up into teams? Do you remember that? Come on, it was hurtful. Some of you are good athletes, so you're like, that was, I was the captain. Um, but remember the captain, right? They would, would take turns picking which person was valuable enough to be on their team. And it's like, it was like Lord of the Flies, right? I mean, it was just this uh, carnal. And every pick before you got picked was like a dagger in your back. And you know how even, even though it looks different, uh, that principle in life pretty much carries through into adulthood. You realize that? <laughs> Never really changes. Some people are always first, they always get what they want, they're always ta- they're talented, they're popular, right? Paul is saying God is the team captain on the playground who chooses the asthmatic kid like me. 
over the jock first. He chooses the unwanted. He chooses the unsuccessful for his team. And this is a very difficult point for us to grasp and to live out because we work so hard and we have all gotten so good at putting on that game face. We aren't even conscious of it anymore. We've perfected it over years and years of practice convincing ourselves that we're good enough and we're smart enough and gosh darn it, people like me, right? We're good at that. But I'm convinced that if people could really see what you think about, every temptation, every decision, every hidden thing, if you really knew Andrew Jones, you would get up and you would leave right now. You'd want nothing to do with me. I am everything Paul says that I am. I am weak, I am low, I am despised, I'm nothing. We so quickly and easily think that God choosing to rescue us says something about who we are, how good or how lovable we are. It's the opposite. He chose to rescue us to say something about who he is, powerful, gracious, unstoppable, loving, and completely backwards. And none of us can stand before God and boast about anything we are or anything we have done. We can only boast in our weaknesses. We can only boast that when no one wanted us, God chose us anyway. God's people seem foolish because who boasts in their weaknesses? Who boasts in their problems? Who shares their inability to do things? And yet this is the kind of people the cross creates. And by the way, this is the kind of people that our world needs so desperately. People who see others as more than just credentials, more than just another customer, more than a nuisance to my life, more than a means to an end. People who see that the ones with the most problems, who've made the worst mistakes, who've never been popular, who've never been successful, those are the people God chooses and that is what gives them value and nothing else. God's people are foolish, we're strange, we're weird. We stand out, but that's a gift to us because it's a reminder that God saves because of his grace and his power and his wisdom and not ours. So boast in that. No one else would have chosen you, but God did. God's way seems foolish and God's people seem foolish. But there's one more thing Paul wants us to see so that we can boast rightly, and it's this. God's message is foolish. His message is foolish. And this is in chapter two, verses one to five. Remember, the chapter divisions were added later. This is all one thought for Paul. Chapter two, verse one. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest in the, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we have to remember here that in Greco-Roman society that Paul is writing, and people were very concerned about the eloquence and rhetoric of public speaking. They're very easily distracted by entertaining speakers and witty speakers, smart-sounding people, uh, and we're less concerned with the actual content being given, which sounds very different from today, right? <laughs> Paul here is saying, I did not at all speak that way or live that way. 
among you. Instead, Paul highlights everything from a worldly standpoint he did wrong as a communicator. He said, I did not use lofty speech. I came in weakness, and we're pretty sure that means some kind of physical problem that was obvious to people. We don't know that, but we're pretty sure. He came in fear and trembling, he says. He was not at all confident in himself that this ministry would work. He preached nothing but Christ crucified, which he knew was the most difficult message for every one of his listeners to accept. And some of the Corinthians were throwing these facts in his face. They were saying, Paul, you're such a dud speaker. There's no way what you're saying is true. But Paul turns that on its head. He says, despite my frailty, despite everything I did wrong, God used it and he saved you. You came to faith. You didn't respond to me and my words, but to God's message of forgiveness of the cross. You experienced the power of the Spirit. That's all the proof that you need, that this message, though it's foolish and it came from a fool, is true. People, it may offend you, it may look foolish to everyone else, but all we have, all we have is a cross. It's all we have. Christ and him crucified. This is our message. There is our hope. This is what we offer to a hurting word. Better than eloquence, better than credentials is God's power to save. That's our position. So if you're going to boast, boast in this. God works in spite of us. This means you don't have to be perfect to make a difference in this world. In fact, it might be better if you're not. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have the perfect words. You don't have to have the perfect life. You don't have to have the qualifications to work with, uh, volunteer with kids or students or to lead a community group or to share your faith. You don't have to trample on others at work to get ahead or you don't need to throw people under the bus when a mistake is made. You can live your life. You can do your job. You can raise your kids knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. Yes, you're inadequate. So am I. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. It's okay. God does his best work in spite of us. Just look at what he does here at Christ's community. Aren't we living proof that God can use anyone? I mean, take that seriously. I mean, Randy's on staff and God uses him. <laughs> Honestly, I cannot tell you how inadequate I feel up here every time I preach. You should see the staff praying before service begins, and I'm speaking for all the teaching pastors here. We look like petrified puppies before we prepare for this. And Being a pastor is a, it's a weird job. I study this book, and then I get up here, and I talk about it for a while, hoping that somehow uh, we hear what it has to say week after week, and in weakness and in fear, and every week the darkness of my heart is exposed. My weaknesses are exposed because I either walk away patting myself on the back or kicking myself for missing the point that I wanted to make. But we are called, all of us, to strive and to make every sermon and every song and every program and every person here about Christ and him crucified. Because what else do we have? What else do we have? I don't have good ideas to make your life better. I don't have good ideas to make your life happier or more successful. If that's what you want, watch Oprah. What we have <laughs> is a cross. That's it. Paul's reminding us that there is a power to this cross. There is a power to it. There is a power to this message that transcends our frailty. It transcends our pastors. It transcends our problems. It transcends our doubts and our questions. There is a power here 
that shines brightest in our weakness if we let it, if we get out of the way. There's only one thing we can boast in, the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you are here and you're wrestling with this, you're thinking, this is just so hard to believe. I understand. Paul is saying that from every human angle, this is foolishness, okay? It doesn't make sense. It offends pretty much every one of our modern sensibilities. But don't reject the cross because it, offend, it is offensive to your culture. Give the cross a fair chance in your mind. God is not waiting for you to figure him out. You don't need to get all your mental ducks in a row before you can approach God. God isn't sending another sign to you that you just haven't seen yet. You don't need more time to figure this out. What you need is an open mind because he is speaking directly to you in the cross right now. He is saying, I am here. I am ready. I am all in with you. Will you give him a chance to speak to you or will you walk away before you can get a word in edgewise. And for those who've accepted this foolish message of the cross, can you imagine what this place would be like if we actually believe this stuff? Despite the fact that we're all a mess, how would your friendships change? Your workplace, your family, your community group. Imagine the freedom we could experience and the folly of the cross. I want to say one more thing. There's a danger in a message like this. Uh, we boast because we are insecure people. That's why we do it. And maybe this message has made you feel even more insecure. <laughs> We're worse off than we think, and God chose us because no one else would, and he works in spite of us. It's like, thanks for the pep talk. I feel great about Monday. Um, <laughs> now, it's true. Nothing humbles us. We can't miss this, like God having to die for us. And sure, the gospel offends me, probably offends you, but don't miss this promise in verse 21 of chapter 1. Paul says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God wanted to save you. Even though we are everything the cross tells us that we are, we are more loved than we dare to dream. Jesus was glad to do this. And if that is true, then we are more fully accepted that he, he knows everything about us, everything and he crossed heaven and earth to be with us, and he calls us his children, not because we are so great, but because he is. That's the cross. That is the power of God, the power to forgive our shame, the power to make us whole, to make our lives mean something. It's what the Corinthians needed so desperately, and it's what we need too. And if trusting good news like that makes us foolish, then call me a fool. If you're going to boast, boast this way with the writer of the hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Father, we know that you alone are wise and you alone are good and you alone save so Father, even this morning, as you have brought things to our mind and heart, things that we rely on, things in our identity that we lean on more than you, that we care about more than you, that we hide because we're ashamed, I pray you bring those things to our mind and heart. Help us to confess that these things do not save and to embrace the foolishness and the humiliation of the cross and the good news that it brings to our lives. We pray this. 
In Jesus' name, amen.